Have you ever seen that meme where it, it looks like a seagull looking back? It's like anytime sound goes wrong, everybody's face at the sound booth. So I'm, I'm thankful these guys. Those are gifts and talents I do not have. So, um, but Job 20 and 21, I just even singing Great is Thy Faithfulness, I just was reminded of um, conversation after church just last Sunday with Pete and, and my wife and just rejoicing over the faithfulness we've seen of God over this last year. And not even just this last year, but the last nine months. Um, just praise God for how he continues to care for us and um, minister to our needs. Continue to pray for Pete as he's going through uh, infusions and pray for Lisa Leonard as she continues to get her treatments as well. But Job chapters 20 and 21, I um, spent a fair amount of time this week and uh, we spent some time with family and a sister-in-law, one of my sister-in-laws was asking, how long does it take to prep a sermon? <sighs> and I said, you know, it all depends. I, I'll be honest with you, Paul, Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, um, pretty typical is anywhere from, from 8 to about 12 to 14 hours. Um, Job, Job, he's, he likes to hit right around 18 to 20. Um, there's just a complexity in, in both the language and the truths, and this is one of those I wrestled with um, through most of the week. Uh, was kind of done a lot of the study on Tuesday and a little bit on Wednesday, and then uh, just did not come together till pretty late, uh, even through Friday. But finally landed in a place that, that I'm convinced that, that really it can be a tremendous blessing to us. I think stories are powerful, and I think stories help us to remember things. Um, one of my favorite stories in the Bible is uh, recorded for us in Mark. And, and most of us, I think, are familiar or at least have heard about Christ having his feet anointed with oil. There's actually two anointings that, that show up in the Bible. One of them is with Mary. Uh, and the other one is an unnamed woman. It happens at a guy named Simon. He's a Pharisee. It happens at Simon the Pharisee's home. And Mark jumps right in, and we have this woman. She shows up, and Jesus was sitting in the, is sitting in the courtyard of Simon's home. Uh, and so the way they constructed these homes is lots of walls on the outside, courtyard in the middle. And so when they had a large gathering or a meal, a feast, um, they, the, the dignitaries would kind of lay on these lounges almost um, and sit around the table and they would eat together. Uh, and anybody else could kind of stand on the periphery and watch and kind of listen in and uh, these sorts of things. And so that that's appears to be what the construct is. The woman uh, eventually comes in. She's standing at Jesus' feet. She's weeping so heavily with so many tears. Her tears are actually hitting the feet of Jesus and starting to wash them. Uh, and she actually bends down and starts to use her hair to dry his feet. She didn't bring a towel and wash basin because, quite frankly, uh, that was Simon's job. As a Pharisee, as the owner of the home, uh, his servant should have washed Jesus' feet, but they hadn't. They hadn't even showed him that courtesy. So she didn't come prepared with that. She came prepared with this alabaster box of ointment that she breaks open, pours on Jesus' feet. Now, I just want to back up because Mark drops us right into that story. But the prelude to that is, is shocking when we understand the culture. So culturally, here we have a woman, and, and the Bible uses this language in, that she's a sinner. And, and frankly, that's euphemistic for that she's a prostitute. And so this woman is a prostitute. She's standing outside of a Pharisee's house. Uh, it's evening time, and you can just see this lady debating about going in. She's got this box of ointment, and, and so for her to have such an expensive box of ointment, but to be a prostitute means that this probably was all the familial wealth that had been handed down to her, and this was intended probably to have been her dowry. Well, obviously, it's never going to be used that way. And so this is like the totality of her wealth. She's standing in the darkness outside of a man of immense wealth, immense power, immense influence, and she has none. She's nobody. She knows she walks in. Uh, it's going to be scandalous. They could run her out. Uh, they, there even could be violence where they take her and stone her if they wanted to. And you can just understand culturally what it would have taken for this lady to walk there and to stand outside, convinced of her own sin, standing in the darkness of night, standing in the darkness of her shame, and that am I going to go in? And she's standing outside of a home of a man who is wicked in all of his own ways. He's a Pharisee. He's fake. He's a hypocrite. Um, Jesus gives all these woes to the Pharisees. You hypocrites, you whitewashed tombs, you, you serpents. And yet he is prosperous. She has nothing in her brokenness, and he has everything. And I think that concept 
is, is powerful. Because what Job 20 and 21 deal with is how when we're in the midst of suffering and deep grief, working through the concept of why do the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper. And that's really what these two chapters are all about. Uh, and so this week, we're going we're gonna to learn this. This, this is going to be our big takeaway. What the truth we want to walk away with, nothing else we want to walk away with this truth. Suffering brings brutal honesty, which can lead to beautiful trust. Now, we're going to tackle these chapters in three levels. Level one, we want to understand these two chapters in the context of the book of Job here. Like, what is going on uh, that we're at this spot? We've had 19 chapters before now, and lots of you have been able to be with us for those um, and understand kind of at least what's going on here. We've got these arguments. We want to understand that level one. Level two, we understand this in a greater context. Maybe just blow it out a little bit bigger in the context of being good counselors or bad counselors to people, good comforters or bad comforters to people. And what do we, how do we respond to this or relate to these chapters as sufferers, uh, particularly as righteous sufferers? And then level three, we're going to finish with dealing with this bigger issue of the wicked prospering and the righteous suffering. And so that's how we're going to walk through our text this morning, and that'll give us the opportunity to both understand these, the verses, and, but then also understand them hopefully in increasing ways. Now, what, what Zophar is going to do is he's going to take chapter 20 to prove the system. Quick reminder, what is the system that Bildad, Eliphaz, or Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar are arguing for? Here's the system. Do bad, get bad. Do good, get good. That's the system. And they believe that that's how all the world works all the time. Do bad, get bad. Do good, get good. So if you're suffering, you've done bad. One plus one equals two. This ain't rocket science. So then Job is suffering tremendously. The degree of Job's suffering then is a revealer of how bad Job must have been. And there's been different hints along the way about what badness they think is there. They seem to have landed on believing uh, that he has had all these shady backroom deals, this kind of smoke-filled room conspiracy theory. Job must have done all that. Because, and why do they have to land there? Because he's done nothing that they've seen. He's done nothing that they've observed. There is no pattern that they can latch onto. There is no evidence to, to besmirch his character. Any accusations would be categorically false. They haven't seen anything, so then they bought into, well, then there must be something hidden because do bad, get bad. Do good, get good. You're bad. You're getting bad. That's your problem. That's the system. And so, so far, Zophar is essentially arguing the same thing. And so what he's trying to prove then to Job is wicked people suffer, you're suffering, you're wicked. And Zophar is like, bro, this ain't even tough. This is like basic math. What is your major malfunction that you don't get this? So then Job's response in chapter 21 is Job is trying to prove that that system doesn't always work. And we've dealt a lot with the complexity of this already, right? We've dealt with the complexity of God saying, what you sow, you shall reap, right? And that there does seem to be a system, even the children of Israel, he basically says, if you obey, will you not be blessed? And if you disobey, will you not be cursed? And so we've dealt with the reality of this system of the way the universe works is not sim that simple. And there are nuances to this. And Job is now experiencing this. Prior to this moment, Job bought into the same exact system, hardcore, in-the-box thinking that all of his friends had. But now Job is suffering as a righteous man. And so Job hears this system, do bad, get bad, do good, get good. And he's like, wait a minute, though. I do good, I get bad. That breaks the system. And so roughly for 19 chapters, I think the last one Job says, these 10 times I've told you this, he's been trying to prove the system doesn't always work because I did good and I've gotten really bad. They don't believe him anymore. And Job now gives up in this chapter of proving that to them. So how else could you prove that the system is broken? It's like the game of Clue. You remember playing Clue? I'm making a suggestion. I'm making an accusation. I think it was, you know, Professor Plum in the conservatory with the, with the lamp or the candlestick, right? And they, everybody shows you the cards and you're trying to narrow down. You got your little squares and you're trying to figure it out. And and you can't, you keep asking this, you keep getting the same thing, then suddenly you realize, I need to quit asking about Plum, uh, Colonel Mustard in the conservatory with the candlestick. And they're like, oh, nobody has the Colonel Mustard. Now I make an accusation, I win. If one pathway isn't working, you got to switch it up a little bit. 
So the pathway is not working for, Paul to, for Job to say, hey, I did good and I got bad. Light bulb moment. The other way I could prove the system doesn't work is by showing that sometimes you do bad and you get good. Oh. If I can show that good people get bad, that's not working because you just think I'm bad. But if I can show bad people get good, that'll destroy the system. And that's what chapter 21 does. So chapter 20, Job, you're wicked. That's why you're suffering. Chapter 21, wait a minute. What about the reality that wicked people get away with a lot? And so let's jump right in, verses 1 through 3, and let's see what Zophar says, and, and you're going to pick up his anger here. Then Zophar the Namathite answered and said, Therefore my thoughts answer me because of my haste within me. I hear censure that insults me. Now to my understanding a spirit answer me. Do you not know this from of old, since man was placed on the earth? Zophar is basically saying, I am sick and tired of listening to you, and I don't appreciate him being rebuked by you. Now, you're like, what rebuke? Those of you that weren't with us, just remind us. If you just back up real quick to chapter 19, the last few verses, this is, the la- this is what Zophar is really reacting to. Job says this, If you say how we will pursue him, and the root of the matter is found in him. In other words, if you keep saying I'm the problem, verse 29, be afraid of the sword, for wrath brings the punishment of the sword, that you may know that there's judgment. And Zophar goes, whoa, 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 don't you threaten me. He basically said, I know I'm speaking hastily here, but I am sick and tired of listening to you. How dare you rebuke me? You sense Zophar's incredible lack of empathy and compassion. He makes it clear so we don't have to read between the lines at all. I'm insulted by you. Out of my own understanding, the Spirit answers me. What he seems to be saying here is God's truth is welling up in me, and I must confront you, you wicked man who is sitting here completely covered in boils and maggots crawling on his skin and a wife that won't even bring you a meal and little children who make songs about you and throw rocks at you and you look like a walking skeleton. You've lost everything you own and your ten children are dead. Buckle up, Job. I'm here to rebuke you. How dare he? What an amazing and astounding lack of empathy and compassion. A number of years ago, we had a young boy come to our church. He attended youth youth activity, um, made a profession of faith, and was really coming really regularly. And suddenly, suddenly his father died. And uh, his parents were not, they, they were not believers, they, they were not religious people, they were not church people. In fact, his father belonged to a biker club. I don't know which club, I don't know if it was a one percenter, but having met his friends, it's a pretty rough biker club. This was not just your, let's ride bikes on the weekends. And the son asked me if I would come and preach his dad's funeral. So I show up at a funeral home nearby here to preach the gospel to a biker gang over the death of one of their friends. They did not like me that day. This was not a happy scene. I tried to preach just to that little hurting boy's heart. 14, lost his dad suddenly. Try to preach compassion. Try to preach empathy. Try to preach the gospel and truth. I just want you to know from a pastoral perspective, preaching the funerals of obvious lost people is brutally difficult, and I think you all would understand that. People want empathy, they want compassion, they want sympathy. You have no reason to believe, barring God in a moment of grace at this man's passing, you have no reason to believe that he's in eternity with Jesus. But that's what everybody wants to hear, right? So how do you proceed? All I'm saying to you is I just want you to enter that world for a moment and ask, then how on earth can Zophar not just give him an ounce of compassion here? I mean, all that this guy has lost in Zophar's singular focus is his own anger. The reality is, we've already clued in on this, keyed in on this, that Zophar, Bildad, and Eliphaz are driven by their own fear. Remember that? Job says, you see me and you're afraid. Why? Because if the system's right, then they have nothing to be afraid of because they think of themselves as good people. Do good, get good. But if the system's broken, like Job says it is, then maybe all the things that have happened to Job could happen to them, and that makes them scared and angry. And so their ministry is not being done out of love, 
It's being done out of the flesh. And I want to remind all of us that when we studied through the spiritual gifts, it made it very clear. Paul starts giving us um, instruction how to use our spiritual gifts. And if you use this gift, do it this way. If you do this, and he repeatedly comes back to the concept, do it in love and do it in the power of the Spirit. That tells us this massive truth. Any one of us in this room, including this guy right now in this moment, can do ministry out of the flesh instead of out of the love of the Spirit. And so what Bildad, Eliphaz, and Zophar are doing is ministry in the flesh. They are angry, they are scared, and they are puking out nonsense on Job. We can all do ministry in the flesh and in theological arrogance. When we mingle those together in our selfishness, we hurt people rather than heal people. What's stunning is by studying the first three chapters, I was talking to my wife about this this week, is Satan doesn't show up again. The accuser doesn't show up again. But when you really understand Job 1, 2, and 3, you understand this reality. Satan is throughout the rest of the book till God starts talking. And he's in the form, listen now, of Job's friends. Now, lest we just let ourselves off the hook, because I think it'd be real easy. Well, those people needed Jesus. Here's the problem. I think they actually already were saved. Why do I think that? They are on mission to speak theological truth that Job was also convinced of. They come to try to provide some kind of ministry, even out of wrong motives. But most significantly, when you get to the end of the book and God says, you guys need to repent, what do they do? There's not even a pause. They immediately repent. They actually give every indication of being believers who are speaking wrong truth. That should terrify us. Because what that means is you and I are just as susceptible when we do ministry in the flesh and out of theological arrogance, we can compound the hurt in someone's life and actually be more like Satan than Jesus to them. That should give us massive pause. Not stopping ministry, but humble pause and a refusal to speak more dogmatically than we ever should to never major on the minors. To never go and open our mouth thinking, well, they just need to hear my truth. And by all means, don't ever make it about us because that's what his friends did. And so this is what we got going on with Zophar here. Now, Zophar says a lot of things that are going to ultimately be true about the wicked, but there are two significant things that make all of chapter 20 almost throw it away. First of all, first, that the punishment of the wicked happens here. Zophar indicates that's his belief, do bad, get bad, here. Do bad here, get bad here. That's just not the reality. Secondarily, that the followers like Job are under God's wrath. If you are a believer and you have repented of your sin and put your faith in Christ, you are not under his wrath. But Zophar preaches to Job like he is. Now Job responds in frustration. I think his frustration is obvious and understandable. Just look at the first five verses of chapter 21. Then Job answered and said, keep listening to my words and let this be your comfort. <laughs> I love that. Like, like somehow he's not going to help his friends out. Bear with me and I will speak. And after I've spoken, mock on. As for me, is my complaint against man? Why should I not be impatient? Look at me and be appalled and lay your hand over your mouth. Two things that Job says there. Number one, why are you so irritated? I'm not complaining about you. I'm complaining about God. So why are you mad at me? Number two, could you just, could you just slow your roll enough to love me enough to quit giving me a hard time? That's, that's really what he's claiming. He's saying that I'm in the midst of deep grief. I'm in the midst of deep pain. Can you just pause a minute? You know, whether it's legitimate questions about what is God doing, why God is this happening, how is this happening, what have I done to deserve this, when his friends hear that, they take it personal like he's attacking God, like he's attacking them. And Job's point is, look, if I am attacking God, can't God deal with it? Why do you got to deal with it? And look at how you're dealing with it, with your lack of love. Whether it's legitimate questions about god that people have when they're suffering or whether it's the sorrow of the suffering whether it's the deep pain of the grieving sometimes sometimes we can make it about us instead of about them and their struggle with god we can somehow be personally offended that they are questioning the sovereignty and power of god as though god is on his throne 
suddenly like, oh no, oh no, they're suffering and they're questioning me. What am I going to do? Is he that insecure? Not at all. Pastor Dane Orton, I think, does a great job addressing what can go on in our hearts when we are dealing with the complaints of others about God. It can be revealed in us that we have not really a concern for truth as much as we have a concern about being right. I quote from him, he says this, If our deepening knowledge of God and grace and all of its doctrinal contours creates in us, imperceptibly uh, perhaps, impatience or frustration with other believers, it is not knowledge of God and of grace that fuels our frustration in snide tone, but concern for being personally right. It is sin. Paul said that if we have all knowledge and all faith but lack love, we are nothing. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. I think that that is the perfect description of Job's three friends. Because you clanged the gong and you pounded the cymbal, not just to annoy somebody, right? Uh, as my children have grown up, interest in various instruments, there's certain ones that are just not acceptable. Dad, I want to learn the cymbals. Great, do it at school. I feel like he's calling me to the brass. Wonderful. Here's a place in the middle of nowhere where you can practice. I just say that as one who grew up playing the trumpet and driving my parents nuts. I'm just kidding. Guitar? Sure. Nice melodic sound. Piano? Yeah, great. Why? Because I don't want to be irritated because I'm selfish. But these are not just irritating noises. These are the noises that they sounded, listen, when a demon would speak through a person. An oracle. Here's a word from a demon. Paul is actually telling us here, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I'm a lot more like Satan than anything else. How much more so when we go to give comfort to someone or counsel to someone, if it is not driven by love, is there the possibility, is there just even the possibility in your life or in mine that there are times we've gone to do ministry and it's been more about us than it is about Christ or them? And is there the possibility that in doing so, it has been out of a lack of love? And is there the possibility then that when we tie all those truths together that we've done more harm than help? More hurt than care? Not only is it a possibility, man, I just got to own that that has got to be the reality of many moments in my life. Are you willing to own that too? There's so many times we can do ministry and it's out of frustration. Well, that's level one. That's level one. That's what's going on in the book and that's what's going on in these arguments. But now we can go to level two. Now we can go to level two and really understand a little bit more the miserable counselors and the meditating suffers we're going to start with zophar then we'll go over to job uh and we, there'll be three truths you can break the chapter down three sections very broadly very easily wicked success is short wicked success is hidden poison wicked success brings god's wrath we already have the we already have the foundation do bad get bad and so he's going to prove to you that this is the way wickedness works let's let's try to unpack these a little bit first of all that wickedness is short you see it in verses four through eleven and I've tried to highlight how you can see, maybe because lots of you take notes. So if you're studying through Job, I think Hebrew poetry can get complex, but you don't need Hebrew. You can just open your Bible and start to see the theme here. Verses 4 through 11. Do you not know this from of old since man was put on the earth? So we're going back to Adam here. The exulting of the wicked is short, the joy of the godless, but for a moment. So we're starting to get the idea that it's really brief. In other words, Zophar is going to say, I would acknowledge that sometimes the wicked prosper, but man, it is, it's like gone quickly. Let me, let me give some poetry for it. Though his height mount up to the heavens and his head reach the clouds, he will perish forever like his own dung. These guys are post-Tower of Babel. There actually were a group of people that tried to build a tower to the clouds and into the heavens, and what did God do? Bam! He, he divides the people, confuses their languages, tower falls down, they move on. And he says, it's kind of like, Frankly, your own fecal matter, it's, just, it's gone. You get rid of it, you bury it, you, you get rid of it. He will fly away like a dream. You ever woken up and you, you really can remember what you dreamed, but by the end of the rest of the day you can't even remember what you dreamed anymore? It's that quick. It seems real, seems real, gone in a moment. He will be chased away like a vision of the night or even a nightmare. The eye that saw him will see him no more. Now will his place anymore behold him. In other words, he seemed big and important, but now he's gone. Who even cares about this guy anymore? 
Uh, who was the Secretary of State two presidents ago? You know, like there's certain people you remember quickly. There's others you forget rapidly. They were really important for a time, but now they're gone. He's saying that's the way the wicked is. His children will seek the favor of the poor. This is how quickly there's a reversal of his fortune. He was rich and wealthy, but now his kids need poor people to give handouts. His hands will give back his wealth. His bones are full of his youthful vigor. And this, I love the poetry of this one. But it will lie down with him in the dust. In other words, it's while he's still a young man with power and strength that it all goes away. He's just saying it goes away quickly. Wicked success is short. And can I tell you this? In some ways, the Bible affirms some of that reality. We even see it in the book of Ephesians with children. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you. You may live long in the land. Nobody learns that better than a dad teaching his children how to drive a car do what i say that we may yet all live long worked with a guy one time he was telling me about i was i was working construction so doing drywall framing 20 some years ago and this guy uh showed up working i was like ah, how was your weekend that was always my intro question for the gospel how was your weekend because i knew where i was over the weekend so what's the natural response oh i went fishing went boating grilled out did yard work what's the next thing they're going to ask you how was your weekend I'm glad you asked. I was in church Sunday morning, heard a sermon about this. Do you ever go to church? You see how, like, I'm not even a good evangelist. That's smooth, right? So that's because I, how was your weekend? And I remember he sat down and he was pale. He's like, almost died. I was like, what happened? He was teaching his 15-year-old daughter how to drive a car. They were coming up to a four-way intersection, lights, they had the green light. He was like, all right, sweetie, I want you to take a right here. We're going to be okay. And they're coming up to it and they're doing about 45, 50 miles an hour. He's like, you want to start slowing down. I say, slow down. Gives her a few seconds. I say, slow it down. Um, she's like, Dad, uh, stop. You're scaring me. Oh, well, slow it down. Slow. You might want to put the blinker on and slow it down. He said, they came to the intersection. She hits the brakes hard, throws the blinker on. They drift, drift into the corner, hop the median. He said, which there was a truck coming, came back across the other way. It was a two-lane road in the right lane, and they kept going. He said it's dead silence in the car. Not a word, another word is spoken. He said they're just sitting there for several minutes. And then his daughter says this. I told you I had it. He said that afternoon he signed her up for driving lessons because he, he thought, I don't want her to die, but I know I don't want to die, and I've got to provide for my family. Like There's this moment of utter terror the Bible is true that lots of times sinful things we do will shorten our lives. That's just one example there from children, but like that's just reality. You become addicted to alcohol and destroy your liver, you'll, you'll die younger, right? All kinds of addictions will, will result in an earlier death and sinful behaviors and sinful choices, right? But Zophar is arguing that that's always the case. That if you are wicked, your life is short. That's his argument. And so while there's some truth there, we already know it's not fully true. What about the next section that wicked success is a hidden poison? In verses 12 through 19. Though evil, so why would somebody do it? And, and this is, you can actually see Zophar's apologetic. If you're going to do bad and die quick, then why would you do it? Well, because though evil is sweet in his mouth, though he hides it under his tongue, though he's loath to let it go and holds it in his mouth, yet his food is turned in his stomach. It is the venom of cobras within him. He swallows down riches and vomits them up again. God casts them out of his belly. He will suck the poison of cobras. The tongue of a viper will kill him. He will not look upon the rivers, the streams flowing with honey and curds. He will give back the fruit of his toil. He will not swallow it down for the profit of his trading. He will get no enjoyment, for he has crushed and abandoned the poor. He has seized a house that he did not build. That's what happens to your blood within a few seconds of the cobra's venom. It congeals it. Can you imagine your body trying to pump that through its veins? He's saying it tastes sweet to us. Proverbs 9.17 supports the same kind of truth. Stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. It's the lie that Eve believes when she sees the fruit that God has forbidden. And the Bible says that she sees it as beautiful, she sees it as good for food, and she ignores the sting of death that it carries. Sin tastes good, and yet it carries death. 
It's part of the reason I always give pause when somebody tells me. Um, man, I'm just praying that God will give me an open door. And they're misusing Paul saying, pray that God will give me an open door of opportunity to share the gospel. Because all the context around that is where he was talking about an open door to share the gospel. He's getting beaten, imprisoned, and persecuted. But most people, experientially now, so if you've said this to me recently, I'm not, I don't remember, and I'm not shooting at anybody. But most people, when they say open door, they mean that and they think that like easy as opposed to a locked door. Open door, locked door. Which one's easy to go through? All I'm going to tell you is when you see Paul talk about open door, it was horrific. And the Garden of Gethsemane was a door, but it came with great drops of blood. My point is this, following Jesus lots of times is hard. And if you're praying, God, would you give me an open door, thinking in any way, shape, or form, that means it would be easy to obey. You have misunderstood that concept. Because following Jesus is taking up your own cross and dying to you. And that is astoundingly painful and difficult at times, i.e., look at Job. But lots of times people look at things and they think it's an open door. And I want you to know this. Sin is always easy. It tastes wonderful. He doesn't hide his poison in foul-tasting things. The enemy masquerades as an angel of light. He wants it to appeal to us. And following our flesh is always easier. But Zophar goes on. And he says that wicked success, though, will bring God's wrath. And we see it in verses 20 through 29. Again, I've highlighted what you could see in the text yourself. Because he knew no contempt in his belly. Talk about a wicked person. He will not let anything in which he delights escape him. There was nothing left after he'd eaten. Therefore, his prosperity will not endure. Have you, <laughs> you ever been like at a church, uh, I don't know, potluck? <laughs> we used to try to call them pot graces when I was growing up, right? You ever been at a church potluck? And there's some people you know, if you get behind them, there ain't going to be no fried chicken left for you. You know what I'm talking about? Like that mama didn't teach them to leave a little for the person coming behind them. Um, but that's what this guy is. The wicked people, it's consumption. Therefore, his prosperity will not endure. In the fullness of his sufficiency, he will be in distress. The hand of everyone in misery will come against him. All these people he's oppressed will rise up against him. To fill his belly to the full, God will send his burning anger against him and rain it upon him into his body. I haven't even taken the time throughout this chapter because we don't have time this morning. How many references Zophar is making to things that Job has said, where he's trying to say, Job, you're preaching yourself. God is raining down his wrath on you. He will flee from an iron weapon. A bronze arrow will strike him through. It's drawn forth, comes out of his body. The glittering point comes out of his gallbladder. Terrors come upon him. Utter darkness is laid up for his treasures. A fire not fan will devour him. What that means is a fire that's so intense, it's so hot, it's so fierce, it doesn't need to be fanned back into life or existence. It's not drowning out. It's just blazing through. It's destroying everything. What is left in his tent will be consumed. The heavens will reveal his iniquity. The earth will rise up against him. The possessions of his house will be carried away, dragged off in the day of God's wrath. This is the wicked man's portion from God, the heritage decreed for him by God. And what is eerily absent is Zophar saying in any way, shape, or form, at this point, even, even though he'd be wrong, there's not even the compassion to say, but Job, you can escape this if you repent. This is nothing but condemnation with no compassion. This is darkness with no hope and no light. The nature of the wicked is wanting more. John D. Rockefeller, who at the peak of his wealth had a net worth that was equivalent to 1% of the entire U.S. economy. He owned 90%, 90% of all oil and gas industry of his time. When, he asked him, when they asked him, when is enough, he said, just a little more. Now, I'm not accusing these men of wickedness, but Rockefeller's riches almost makes Bill Gates and Warren Buffett look like paupers. What about Jeff Bezos? I give him plenty of money. Thank you, Amazon. Jeff Bezos, his net worth, I'm going to give you an astounding statistic of how wealthy these guys are. If you started making $200,000 a day on the day Jesus was born, now, we all know that that was not actually December 25th, zero. Right? We all know that, but we just 
for sake of argument this morning. Today, nobody going to go out and tweet. Pastor actually said Jesus was actually, but no, I didn't. Just help us out. $200,000 a day from December 25th, year zero. You made two hundred grand a day every day between that day and this day. Guess what? You'd be $30 million short of how much he's worth right now. You can't even wrap your mind around that kind of money. Two hundred grand a day, every day, for the last 2,000 years, and I'm still $30 million short. The level of wealth, when's enough enough? These guys are so wealthy. Uh, Musk, Elon Musk is so wealthy, like he could own 100 aircraft carriers like that and still be worth billions. Like, it's just shocking. Now, I'm not saying this about these guys, but I am telling you this. Zophar is hitting the truth because Jesus told us what? Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. And I'm not shooting at wealthy people. Abraham was wealthy. But I'm telling you, a heart that is driven for more here is a revealer of a wicked heart. I will tell you that. Because Jesus makes it clear, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupt and thieves can break in and steal away from you where it can be gone in a moment, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. It's very clear that wicked people are driven out of a heart that's all about more here. And Zophar is saying that God won't let that last. Remember, Zophar is saying this is always the case, and this always will happen here, that when you see a wicked people, wicked person doing this, God's going to take it all away from them. Is that really true? It would be, if you applied Zophar's system, it would be like walking through St. Jude's Hospital and believing every child that's there battling cancer is there because they're wicked and God is striking them down. Now, how does Job defeat that kind of argument? All he has to prove is either righteous people suffer, which he's gotten over there with that for, for 20 chapters, or all he actually has to do to prove that the system, as they're presenting it, is broken, is find one wicked dude that's prospered his whole life. That's all he's got to do to prove it. And the question is, can he do that? Well, he's going to break his chapter down in three sections as well. We can go through those. First of all, Excuse me, he says the wicked live a safe life. You can sense the grit in Job's voice when he says this. He says, when I remember I am dismayed, verse 6 of 21, and shuddering seizes my flesh, why do the wicked live, reach old age, and grow mighty in power? Have you ever wondered that? Their offspring are established in their presence, their descendants before their eyes. Their houses are safe from fear and no rod of God is upon them. Their bull breeds without fail. Their cow calves and does not miscarry. They send out their little boys like a flock and their children dance. They sing to the tambourine and the lyre. Then rejoice to the sound of the pipe. They spend their days in prosperity and in peace they go down to Sheol or they die. They say to God, depart from us. We do not desire the knowledge of your ways. What is the Almighty that we should serve him? What profit do we get if we pray to him? Behold, is not their prosperity in their hand. The counsel of the wicked is far from me. Can I just tell you that that mindset can creep into the heart of every believer? When God deals with the church in Laodicea, he says that you have become apathetic and lukewarm. Why? When does that happen? Look at the heart of those folks. You say, I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing. Not realizing you're wretched, pitiable, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so you may be rich. White garments so you may clothe yourself in the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. Salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline so be zealous and repent. Job is irritated because the wicked in his observation actually go through life feeling really good. Just, just for time, look at one of them, verse 11. In verse 11, how does he describe it? They send out their little boys like a flock and their children dance. How, did you let, how would you let the flock out? You'd go to the fields. You have mass. You have acres of fields. Don't think little fenced field like we have around here. Acres and acres. You need these sheep to be able to wander and the flocks and the sheep and the goats to be able to flourish. And so you literally, you take the sheep out, you open the gate and you go, go! I'll check on you later at some point. Does anybody do that with their children? Go! Be free! Don't get kidnapped or die! What about somebody that suffered? What if you had a couple, and tragically, they'd had a little boy drown in a pool? 
You think they don't ever have PTSD every time they have their other children around a pool? You think if somebody has been in a car wreck and lost a child, you think they don't, their heart rate doesn't go up any time they're in a car with their child? How about one that's choked? You think they don't have a little bit of misgivings about the size of their children's portions and what they eat? Job lost 10 kids in one day. One day he's sitting there and they're all dead. They're all gone. And Job sits there and he looks and he says, there's wicked people and their kids just go out and they're fine. Their kids are fine and they're not even afraid. Job says, that's my experience. My experience is not that the wicked's lives are cut short. My experience is that the wicked people seem to live a very safe life. They seem to be quite happy with themselves while I'm sitting over here suffering. It's not a theological argument for Job. This is his life. He presses on there, though, and he says it's not just that they live a safe life. He says they live a long life. Pick back up in verse 17. How often is it that the lamp of the wicked is put out, that their calamity comes upon them, that God distributes pains in his anger, that they are like straw before the wind, like chaff that the storm carries away? How often, Zophar, how often does it happen, like you said, that really quickly they're burnt up? You say God stores up their iniquity for their children. Lay and pay it out to them that they may know it. Let their own eyes see their destruction. Let them drink of the wrath of the Almighty. For what do they care for their houses after them when the number of their months is cut off? His point is this. How does it punish the wicked for them to die safely, go to the grave, and their kids suffer for them? What good does that do? Will any teach God knowledge, seeing that he judges those who are on high? One dies in his full vigor, being wholly at ease and secure. His pails are full of milk, the marrow of his bones moist. Another dies in bitterness of soul, never having tasted of prosperity. They lie down alike in the dust and the worms cover them. In other words, he's saying wicked people die and they get buried just like poor people do. Behold, I know your thoughts, your schemes to wrong me. For you say, where's the house of the prince? Where's the tent in which the wicked lived? Have you not asked those who travel the roads? Do you not accept their testimony? You know what he's saying to him? He says, you want to argue with me? Go ask anybody if what I'm telling you isn't the truth. Doesn't it seem like wicked people live a long time while righteous people die young? How about this dude, Vladimir Kutruk? He died just a few years ago in Canada. Poor guy, died. He had a French wife, was a beekeeper, kept to himself in Canada. He also was an SS soldier who participated in the wholesale slaughter of over 150 women and children in what is now modern-day Belarus in a little tiny village. Packing them into a house and letting the door open, and as they came out, machine-gunning them down. Children slaughtered. Innocent women slaughtered. Older men who could not even serve or hold a rifle slaughtered. And this dude gets to die a beekeeper, raising honey and living wonderfully comfortable with his wife into his 90s. Where is justice? Don't tell me the wicked always die young. They don't. That's what Job's saying. If you don't believe me, if you just think I'm bitter, go ask anybody on the street. If that hasn't been their, their experience. Last one is Job says, wickedness actually prospers. You said it leaves you poor. Pick it back up in verse 29. Have you not asked those who travel the roads? Do you not accept their testimony? The evil man is spared in the day of calamity. He's rescued in the day of wrath. Who declares his way to his face and who repays him for what he has done? Who, let me just pause, who weathered the last economic storm the best? Was it all the hardworking blue-collar or even white-collar people that kept their nose to the grindstone? Or was it the fat cats that had worked the system? Who escaped prosecution and moved to the Bahamas with their millions while other people's entire retirement accounts were worn out? We all know the answer. Verse 31, who declares his way to his face and who repays him for what he's done? When he is carried to the grave, watch is kept over his tomb. In other words, these guys die and there's a big celebration. The clods of the valley are sweet to him. All mankind follows after him. Those who go before him are innumerable. How then will you comfort me with empty nothings? There is nothing left of your answers. Falsehood. Lesson two, level two is this. The injustice of the wicked prospering makes everything worse man job has boils he's lost his kids he's lost his wealth this just makes it worse the understanding i'm suffering but why am i suffering 
while they're not. Now, I just want to pause here a moment and remind us, Job has never said he's sinless. What he has maintained and what God has maintained is he didn't deserve this. So lest in theological arrogance, and I hope nobody would go here, when I use the illustration about walking through St. Jude, seeing all these children struggling with cancer, if you would look at them and say, well, the wicked should get punished, and they are born sinners, so they do deserve this. Nobody's talking about in this moment how every single person is born a sinner and deserves God's wrath. That's true. What is very clear from God is that there are things and suffering in our lives that happen that are puzzling pain that we have not earned. So if you are tempted in theological arrogance to say, well, everybody has earned that. Great, you got three friends to hang out with. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. But if I were you, I'd keep my mouth zipped when I get to heaven and talk to Job about it. And so the fact that when you're suffering puzzling pain, you haven't deserved a righteous person, but you look around and you see wicked people prospering, what do you do with that? The last few minutes, that's where we're going to go. That's level three. How do we process through the wicked prospering? And I think the first question that anyone asks is why? 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 Why would that happen? Why isn't there this, just this perfect system then? Now, this is not just you or me or Job that asked this question. It's actually the cry throughout the book of Psalms. And I, and I would just point your heart, first of all, you're in good company. Asaph in Psalm 73 writes this. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. I just want to affirm this to you. If your heart struggles like Job's, why do the wicked prosper? You're in good company. It's not just Job, the righteous and blameless man who questioned this. It's not even just the psalmist. I just want to remind us of this cultural reality. The psalms are the hymn book. I can't think of one single hymn that we sing as a church consistently that expresses this sorrow. But the Israel sang it all the time. Maybe this tastes so weird to us because we don't sing it that way. It's not etched onto our hearts and in our minds, set to tunes. God, why are the wicked prospering? But it was for them. In other words, this is not just the most righteous. This is not just the most blameless. This is the common heart question of righteous people. So don't be ashamed of asking it. Don't be embarrassed or assume it's because you're spiritually immature. It's the cry of the mature, struggling one. And so where do we go? Well, I think there's two places that give us at least one answer. The rest of Psalm 73 and Romans 2, and they both point to the same thing. Psalm 73 first, verses 16 through 20. When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end, the end of the wicked. Truly you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Now that sounds a lot like what Zophar said. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord. When you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. That sounds stunningly like Zophar, but remember where Zophar got it wrong. He said it always happens where? Here. What does the psalmist say? It's coming. Now we would want to ask, what's the deal then? Why couldn't you have knocked out Vladimir way back in 1945? Why does he not face judgment till he dies in his 90s? Romans. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed? I would boil it down this way. God's justice is not denied, but delayed. 
The delay of justice either will increase wrath, Romans 2, and the deserved punishment of the wicked, or it highlights his mercy, grace, and forgiveness when they should repent. Now, I think of the Canadian pastor whose little 14-year-old girl went out jogging in the woods next to their home. And she was brutally assaulted and murdered by a man. I thought of that just as a pastor and as the parent of a 16, 14-year-old and today, a 12-year-old. And I'm just going to be honest with you. I struggle with this. I'm not real happy about delayed wrath. Not happy about it. I want it right now. And so this is one of those theological truths that I'm going to believe by faith and have to rest in, but wrestle with. And I'm just being that open with you because I want you to understand, I don't believe we actually are on a quest to become so spiritually mature that we don't ever wrestle with truth that we believe. I believe it, I wrestle with it, I trust it. Doesn't change the emotions overnight. Just doesn't change them. And it's okay to wrestle with it. Job's wrestling, he's righteous and God doesn't condemn it. It's okay to wrestle. But I want you to know one answer that God gives from his word, both from the Psalms and from Romans, is this. Delayed wrath is not denied wrath. So I think if we move past why, though, we start to ask, how can I trust? I want to give you two ways to trust, and we'll be all done this morning. First one, trust the judge. This is really good for my heart. I hope it's good for yours. Romans 12, 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. We tend to think that if the wicked got theirs, we'd feel better. That's how we tend to think. We've thought that way since we were small children fighting with our brothers and sisters. An escalating conflict. They pick at me, I pick at them. They do this, I do that. They do this, and and it's like a prank war. It only escalates, right? I don't ever remember a time with with any of my three brothers, and primarily my older one, because we were just the ones closest in age, two and a half years apart, where we got in some little tiff or fight or whatever. I don't ever remember, like, if he pinched me and then i punched him and then he punched me harder and then i punched him i don't ever remember my brother saying in that moment okay now we're fair after i clocked him i felt it was fair after i got the last hit but he didn't think it was fair here's the reality i know if i'm honest and you should know if you're honest you can't be trusted for what is just not fully Because if we were going to be trusted with what is just, I have to be willing to say, not only should vengeance be on them for all that they have done, but vengeance should be on me for all that I have done. We cannot be trusted, but we do have a judge that we can trust. We are not God. We would never make things fully just. Even our culture's fascination recently, I saw a statistic, I wish I could remember it, I won't give you the number, but the increase of films and books about vengeance and revenge over the last 20 years has just seen exponential increase. And yet what they have in common is this, the person enacting vengeance or revenge always, everyone that I've ever seen or read, so that my personal experience, and I've read and seen a lot of them, just to be honest with you, the person ends like a shell of a human being. It doesn't solve their hurt. But we are tempted to think, if I could just see the wicked suffer, I'd feel better. I'm arguing with you that the Bible says, no, you won't. Stop meditating on it. Stop trying to make it happen. I am not saying in this, though, that there should never be justice here. I am not saying that police should not be called. I'm not saying authorities should be called. I'm not saying church discipline should never happen. All I'm saying is when we're talking about the wicked prospering, you and I cannot make it our mission for wrath or justice. We have to trust the judge. Now, here's another problem that I'll just, you know, why, why not just make it more complex? What if the person who has deeply wounded you is a believer? Oh, well, then that for sure isn't fair because they get off scot-free. Because Jesus took all the wrath. You ever felt that way? Do not respond. I have. Well, that's just not fair, God. 
I'll give you three truths to help comfort your heart. First of all, first of all, God may not pour out wrath like a judge, but he will lead them like a father. And Hebrews 12 tells us if they're his, he will discipline and chasten them. You ever, I don't know if you, I had these moments, I remember one time last week I talked about this, like if your sibling, so for me it's all brothers, if your sibling was getting in trouble when you're a kid, sometimes you want to jump in there with dad, right? Yeah, 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 you better listen to dad. And Oh yeah, yeah, get him dad, get him. And I remember my dad looking at me like, you really want to be all up in this? I'm going to let you handle your business, Dad, right? Because I don't want to divert. I don't want to bring this over here. I'm going to let you handle it. First truth, they're God's kid. God will deal with them. But that's not the only truth I would give you. The next truth I would give you is that God deals severely with Job's friends. Just as an image to it, if you need that to go and study uh, Job 42, go and read that ahead this week. He deals with them. But I'll give you a third truth. As I'm calling you to respond righteously in the midst of suffering while the wicked are prospering, and specifically in this moment, I'm applying it to a believer who's acted wickedly and is hurting you. I'm going to give you some truth that will echo in eternity, right? If you were to go to Philippians chapter 2, it starts calling us to have in us the mind of Christ. Have this mind in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who did what? He did not think his position in, in heaven was something to hold on to, to grasp, to grip tightly, but he gave it up, became a servant of everyone, He showed his obedience even to death on the cross. And immediately after that, this is what God says. Therefore, he has highly exalted him. Listen to me now. Jesus' place of exaltation is directly linked to his righteous suffering. Now, my next question would be, is that true for us? Well, if you were to go to Mark chapter 10, verses 35 through 45, remember these two friends of Jesus? Remember what they said? I would like to sit on the right hand and he would like to sit on the left. Remember that moment? In other words, we want exaltation in the kingdom. Jesus says, that's not up to me to give it to you. But that's up to the Father. What is the very next thing he tells them? Can you drink the cup I'm about to drink? What's the cup? The cup of righteous suffering. They say, oh, we can drink it. They don't even know what they're talking about. And then Jesus looks at them and he says, you will drink it. In other words, it's not just for Christ in Philippians 2, but it's for every righteous sufferer There is exaltation in the kingdom for the ones who suffer righteously. Now, what's really hard for me is at this point, you know, seminary, Bible college, pastoring for a long time. I've said this a lot, and I believe this, that the number one most important thing about heaven is being with Jesus. Bar none. No question there. I I really, I'm sold out on that. But I do want you to know this. Jesus also says, and some of you who have been faithful in little will be faithful in much in the kingdom. And there are riches and rewards in places of honor and positions of authority. And who are they reserved for? And I'm telling you this morning that Philippians 2 and Mark 10 indicate to us that some of those positions of ruling and authority in the eternal kingdom are given to those who have suffered righteously. Does that take away your pain? Nope. But it's a truth he intends for us to listen and live in. And you know what I don't want to do? Forsake him saying, enter in, well done, thou good and faithful servant, so I can have all my own vengeance. Trust the judge. I'll give you one last thing to trust, and we're all done. Trust the gracious one. Asaph finishes here in Psalm 73. But for me, it is good to be near God. I've made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. As he starts to meditate on the end of the wicked, he starts to be thankful for God's grace to him. Being brutally honest about the wicked prospering should drive us to consider the grace that we have received. That woman stood outside Simon the Pharisee's house. She is cloaked in the darkness of her sin, covered in shame over her life, terrified of how she'll be received, but something compels her, something drives her to make her way through the crowd and to just stand at his feet. And she's just sobbing, tears hitting his feet, experiencing judgment because Simon judges her. This prosperous, wicked man now lording it over this very, very broken, sinful woman who is now coming to Jesus. She begins to anoint his feet with all the worldly wealth that she has. And Jesus tells him a parable 
And the tagline of the parable is this. And here's the question. Why did she push in? Why or how can you and I have comfort and how can we trust in the midst of our own suffering, even when the wicked are prospering? And this is what he says, because those who have been forgiven much love much. And so I'm shocked by my study this week because I was reminded of this truth. What if God can use the sins of the wicked, not just nameless wicked I don't know, but people that have personally been wicked toward me, and everyone in this room, you have that experience, friends, family, neighbors, co-workers, whomever, you've experienced people's wickedness. And it's stunning to me that from Psalm 73, from the book of Job, from the book of Romans, from the truth of Mark Mark 10, and from the truth of Philippians 2, and from the story of this woman, that suddenly I'm beginning to realize that as I'm questioning why, because suffering makes me be brutally honest about the truth of this world, that can drive my heart to begin to reflect on grace that I've received. And suddenly, God can use the wickedness of others and their prospering here to make me love him more. It sounds an awful lot like Satan dancing on the tomb on Saturday, but Sunday was rolling, folks. It sounds an awful lot like Satan thinking he has gotten the best when the wicked prosper. He's gotten the best when this woman is a prostitute and she's broken. But the truth is, God can use suffering that makes you be brutally honest, which can lead to beautiful trust.